Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Probably or arguably, I guess, the greatest evangelical preacher uh, in our time, in terms of when I say greatest, the most uh, effective evangelistic preacher. He came to a crisis of faith on a golf course, and he was wrestling with whether or not he could believe all of the Bible. And his wrestling was because he didn't understand it all, because some parts seemed uh, too good to be true, or some parts seemed to, to be conflicting. And he had a contemporary who actually was much better on stage. He, he spoke much more uh, eloquently, he had, he had better arguments, but... But his contemporary's fault was this. He didn't believe the Bible. Today, nobody knows who that person is. Everybody, well, actually not everybody today, but in my days, everybody knew the name Billy Graham because on that golf course at a particular tee, I believe it was the 18th hole even, he, he said, you know what, God? I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. But here and now, this very moment, I choose to place my entire faith in the truth and in the power of your word. And we all know how that story turned out. So the question is, is the Bible credible? Now, we have an issue of credibility in our culture. Wouldn't you agree? That credibility is in crisis. We, we have this crisis for a number of reasons, the least of, uh, not the least of which is the fact that we now have an information superhighway. And there are experts at everything, but the problem is these experts are self-appointed experts. And they are experts because they say, this is my specialty, when frankly they have no idea, most of them, what they're talking about. You know what I'm saying here? And, and there's a problem with this credibility issue because the more information there is, the harder we have to work to sort through who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie. Now, I'm a very, I, I grew up very innocently in that I, I didn't understand true evil. I mean, I had a great family life and very stable uh, upbringing, and so, so I didn't understand that people would look at you and give you a bald-faced lie and, and, and do it intentionally. I thought everybody would generally tell the truth, and so I had to learn that, that not everybody had my best interest in mind, that not everybody would tell me the truth, and I could not easily, all the time, spot a liar. But folks, you know and I know that some people will lie, and they're really, really good at it, Right? And then other people tell the truth, but we don't give them any credibility because we assume that based on the way they look or, or one thing or another that they can't possibly know what they're talking about. So, how do we determine credibility? Because credibility is everything when it comes to the, the speaker of truth claims. Now, the truth claims don't change based on the credibility of the speaker, but whether or not you believe those claims has a lot to do with the credibility of the speaker. Would you agree? If you go into a court of law and there's somebody testifying, what's the first thing you want to know? What's the first thing that the prosecutor or the defense is going to try to prove or disprove? Their credibility. Can you believe their testimony? And so let me ask you this. I'm going to open up the floor. What determines a person's credibility? What do you, what do you use as a, as a gauge of credibility? Go ahead. One at a time, please. One at a time. Character. Okay. A person's character speaks to their credibility. What else? 
History. All right, you're talking about a track record of have they told the truth in the past or are they known to be a liar, right? By the way, let me tell you, if you get if you get a history, if you get a track record of being a liar, that is super hard. It's not impossible, but it's incredibly difficult to ever out outrun that track record. Wouldn't you agree? That's why integrity and truth is so important. Yes, sir. Education, man, you guys are good. Education, absolutely. We now it's not a it's not a determination of credibility, but it's at least a factor in it, right? For instance, I would not the, ask the cashier at at, at uh, 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 McDonald's, "Hey, can you tell me what's wrong with this rash here?" Right? I mean, I'm not going to do that because because I mean that's probably not their specialty. And in the same way, I'm probably not going to ask a musician to, to uh, tell me how to, uh, to fix a light bulb. Because, I mean, it, they might know, but it's, it's, it, there's specific skills that people know. And education makes a big deal. Yes, ma'am. Whose they are. Oh, so true, so true, so true. All right, truth or lie. You will believe a person based on whether they're an elephant or a donkey. Huh? Don't even... Okay, I'm just saying, from a lot of what I read out there, if a person's a donkey and a donkey says it, it's absolutely true. I'm not even going to test it. A donkey and an elephant. I'm talking about a Republican or a Democrat, right? I saw some confusion. The innocence is marvelous. Please stay that way. Please. I mean, right? Truth? So the affiliation, whose you are. Whose you are. And, I, and you might have even been saying, okay, who, who owns you? Are you a per, what's your worldview? See, all of these things we put into credibility. Yes, sir. Their experience and training. Absolutely. Now, let's just suppose I was in the car with a teenager. And let's just suppose the teenager was driving faster they needed to, than they needed to drive on the wet roads. Just totally hypothetical here. And let's just say that I told the teenager, hey, slow down. The roads are too wet to be going that fast. What would you think if the teenager said, I'm not going too fast. Look, I can stop. See, I stopped. Now, hypothetically speaking, that would be uh, inexperience speaking, right? Or hydroplaning, that's right. And what would, you, what would you suppose that I might say? Maybe something to the effect of, that's right, I've been, draw, been, I mean, hypothetically, I've been driving since before you were born, so I know nothing about the possibility of skidding on a road. Parents, unite, right? <laughs> Amen? Teenagers, unite, right? So, so credibility is a big issue. And I'm not going to tell you which one of my hypothetical children did that. But you, 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 can, you can guess, you have three chances. You'll probably get it wrong, I'll just tell you. So, so here's the thing. What makes God's Word credible? Because here's my, here's my assertion today, and I believe this is the assertion of God's own Word. The Bible is the single most credible, reliable, instrumental book in the history of the world. And of all the books, of all the resources, of all the sources of information in the history of the entire world, the Bible is supreme among them all. That's my claim today. But I would say to you this, that we don't treat God's Word that way. 
Lots of reasons, perhaps, but at the end of the day, we don't treat God's Word with the supreme authority that it has, maybe because we're too familiar with it, yet we're not familiar enough with it. Do you know that there used to be a day when the only way to hear God's Word, or the only way to, have God, to learn God's Word, was to go to a place where there was a preacher... And that preacher would read and expound on the text for you. Number of reasons. Number one, illiteracy rate was tremendous. Number two, the access to God's Word was very, very low. Before the Gutenberg Press, you only had a copy that was handwritten. It wasn't like you would just go print a bunch of copies. Today, you can get a copy anywhere. In fact, most of us have more than one copy in our houses, right? Everybody in this room has a Bible, and if you don't, you have access to one. There was a day when the only way to hear it was to have a preacher tell you. But today, not only do we have God's Word in print with us here, hard copy, but we have God's Word with us on our phone, we have God's Word with us on our iPads, we have it everywhere, and our familiarity perhaps has bred contempt. Perhaps we've forgotten the truth of what His Word will do. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 19, and let's kind of get into some proofs here. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, and much than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is a great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults and keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent, and great, the innocent of great trans- transgressions. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. So the author is King David, and he is writing this psalm, Psalm 19, and and. He doesn't realize he's doing it, I don't think, but he's really given us the two kinds of revelation from God. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 6. That is a what? A general revelation. General revelation is God, what's what's known about God is that what is known about God is plain to all people. That there's an opportunity for everybody on the planet to know certain things about God. And he reveals himself through general revelation in three ways. One, through nature. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies declare the work of his hands, right? So through nature. Also, the second one is through history. We have history that tells us about the nature of who God is. We talked last week about the, the nation, nation of Israel and the history of how God has, has kept them and moved them and, and protected them. And then the third is humanity. We look at people. We look at human beings and we see a lot of God in humans. We see the, the, the love of God, glimpses of the love of God through humans, His kindness, right? Now, why is that? Why? Because God made us in His 
Himago Dei, in His image. And so His fingerprint is on us more so than it is on anything else anywhere. But His fingerprint is everywhere. So He's touched everything. Why? Because He's created everything. But His fingerprint is most strong on us. So that is a general revelation, no matter if you're in the the bush in in, uh, in Brazil, in the rainforest, or if you're in the, the, the desert of the Sudan, or if you're in Europe, in, in England, it doesn't matter. God's, pres- God's, God's revelation is there generally, but then He also gives a specific revelation. Now, this word specific, you also might hear theologians talk about the word particular or special. So particular, special, specific, that's all in the same category of a, a unique revelation from God, about God. Now, what can you learn about God through general revelation? You can learn basic things. His power, His might, His, his, uh, his creativity. But you can't learn His character through general revelation. You've got to have special or specific. Now, how does God give us this specific revelation? He gives it to us through His Word and through the Word made flesh. But now, here's the thing. God's Word is a written record of the heart of God. A written record of the heart of God. The importance of it being written down cannot be overstated. Ravi Zacharias tells a story and he says this. He said, there was a student arguing with his professor about the need to have written sources in his final work, in his final paper. And the professor said, no, you have to have written sources. You can't just tell me that so-and-so said something verbally in a conversation. It has to be written down. And the kid, of course, argued with him. And finally, the professor capitulated and said, okay, fine. That's fine. I won't require you to give me written sources. The kid thought he was pretty sharp. And he thought, man, I won that one. Turned his paper in. At the end of the class, he noticed he didn't get a grade. He didn't, didn't know if he passed the class. And so he went to the professor and he said, Hey, did I pass or did I not? He says, Yes, you passed. Well, where's my grade? He said, oh, I'm not going to write it down. You can just tell them on the next place that you passed. And of course, the truth remains, right? If it's written down, there's power in it. Would you agree with this? Listen, a little known secret. That's why you never write down anything you don't want remembered for eternity. That's why you some things you don't ever write down. Right? And then some things you always write down. Have you ever seen Judge Judy? What will she tell you? If you have a verbal contract, it only means so much. But if you write it down, there's no dispute. So God wrote His Word. And I say God wrote His Word. How did He do that? He wrote His Word through people, through human authors, which actually lends itself towards more credibility, not less. We'll get to that in a moment. Here are four benefits of God's Word. Verse 7. You ready? The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, what's the word perfect mean? Let me tell you. In the Hebrew, the word perfect means perfect. Right? The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So God's Word refreshes the soul. Can you remember a time where your soul was dry? Where you were 
You were either yearning or longing or you were, you were hurt or you were broken and there was something, something of, of some kind of chaos inside of you and you, you sought refreshment, you sought renewal. Do you, do you ever remember a time like this? And oftentimes we go to other sources to find that refreshing. Where are those, what, 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 do, we, what do we go to to find refreshment of our soul? Okay, but let's leave Jesus out of it for just a moment. I know that's the right answer, but, but let's, let's go to where, where we often go to first before we realize, hey, that's not satisfying. That's right. Friends and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Two things. And they both work. Okay, now, can a friend refresh the soul? Absolutely, right? Can Chick-fil-A refresh the soul? Absolutely. It's Jesus chicken. Of course it can, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, but, it, but, but only to a degree. What about music? Can music refresh the soul? Absolutely. Uh, Pastor Gabba was telling us this morning, and we were praying, that, that he took a course on counseling, and he said that there are six songs that you can listen to, and that if you're, if you're uh, anxious and tense and, and confused, that listening to these six songs can help calm you down. I don't know, what the, I don't know the, the research behind it, so I'm going to get it from him and see if it's true. But, but yeah, music is, 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 is a way to refresh the soul. What else? Singing. Okay, music. Listening to it or singing it. The what? The beach. <laughs> or football. I guess it all depends. Yeah, these are all good things, right? But have you ever had a, a, such, such an issue in your soul that you tried all of those things and they just didn't work? And yet, when you came to God's Word, it was almost like God's Word knew you. And the words were just life-giving. Like this, this spring of life inside of you. that gave you hope and refreshment and encouragement. God's Word, God says, refreshes the soul because it is perfect. By the way... How many things, excuse me, how many things do we tend to fill our mind with? Let me say it differently. We have emotional space, right? Where do we go to fill our emotional space? We, saw, we talked about a few of them, music, people. But what else, do we, what, do, what else do we use to fill our emotional space? Okay, prayer. What else? Facebook. Yeah. Uh, uh, media of all sorts, right? So we fill our emotional space with all kinds of media, all kinds of external things. Question, this is going to be a hard one. How does that compare with how much you fill your mind with God's Word? Because I don't know that Facebook has the ability to refresh the soul. I do know it has the ability to make you cuss or want to. But refreshing the soul? Yeah, there's some good stories, but overall, do you find soul refreshment from it? The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The claim of the Bible is this. If you will let the Bible speak to every area of your life, you will find wisdom from God. And it's, this, and, and it's so complete 
that, that, that there is not a single decision you will ever make in your entire life that God does not have some wisdom to give you in making that decision. Have you ever had a decision and you didn't know which way to go? Where do you, what do you do? Well, what, what do we do is we, we list pros and cons and we go talk to our friends and we, we, we weigh it back and forth. But I suggest to you that the number one thing we need to do is go to God's Word and say, God, what do you say about this decision? You say, well, I'm sorry, but the, God's Word is not going to tell me which model of oven I'm supposed to buy. Right? That's a decision. If you ain't bought an oven, trust me, that's a decision. But it will tell you some precepts about wisdom. And it will give you some, some ideas of how to go about buying that will help you in your, in, in, in your decision, right? Making wise the simple. The next promise, there are four of them here in the very beginning. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Joy to the How many of you could use a little joy to the heart? Anybody? Yeah, I'm a pretty joyous person, but I'm always up for more. I'm always game for a little bit more. Joy to the heart. Where do we find joy? Well, we find joy in all kinds of external places, but how many of us sit down with God's Word and say, okay, I'm looking for joy. Joy, baby, joy, right? It gives joy to the heart. There are times in my life, and I'm sure there's times in your life, that I, that I open up God's Word and, and it gives me this, 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 this sense of the presence of God in such a way that I go, man, why don't I do this all the time? You ever had that happen? And you're like, I wish I could remember this moment right here because my soul is refreshed, my simplicity is made wise, and I've got joy. And the next one, I've got light. The, fear, uh, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Question, what else in life promises refreshment of the soul? Promises um, making, uh, uh, pro promises wisdom, promises joy to the heart, and promises light for the, for the eyes. What else in your life gives those promises? Any, anything? Can you name one thing? Not one? But God says, with no apologies, listen, I'm going to give you something that is going to be all sufficient for telling you who I am. Now, I want to be careful to say, the Bible is not God. We don't worship the Bible, but the Bible is how we know the God we worship. Now, at this point, you might be saying, yeah, yeah, I know these things. This is old school you know, I mean, of, of course the Bible's that way. But if that's true, how does that, how is that played out in your life? How much time do you spend absorbing God's Word? Letting it remake you. Letting it shape you. Letting it form you. Towards the end, if we have time, I'm going to go through and kind of help us to, how to know how to do that. But now is just the question. Compare your emotional free time to how much time you spend in God's Word and how much you sp time you spend on anything else. That might answer some questions for you. That might answer why you're restless. That might, might answer why you're confused. 
that my, my answer why you're anxious, that my answer why you're afraid, that might answer a lot of questions. Because God's word has these promises attached to it. So if we finish through, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. What other promise says, look, of all the things in the world, this is more valuable, more precious than gold. Sell everything you have if it's what it takes to have this. I'm reminded of Brother, I think Brother Yen, I can't ever say his name right, a pastor in China. I remember reading his, uh, his story and just being in awe, almost in tears at how he was in prison and the thing that kept him going while he was in prison was the Word of God that he had memorized. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I were to be placed in prison right now and have no access to God's Word, would what I have already put into my life and in my heart be enough to sustain me through the imprisonment? Do you have enough of God's Word inside of you already that if you were to lose the ability to read and lose the ability to hear, if your entire life went dark, would you have enough to have refreshment, to have wisdom, to have joy, and to have light? That's not a, that's not a criticism. That's, a, that's an honest question. Because I suspect for most of us, if we knew that was coming we would probably kick it into high gear, wouldn't we? And so, sweeter than honey, by them your servant is warned. Uh, warned. Verse 13, keep your servant also from sin so they may not rule over me. How does he do that? He does that through his word. So, we're all the way back to the question, how can I believe the Bible? Where does the credibility come from? I want to offer you a few, a few, a few proofs, okay? Proof number one is the extreme uniqueness of this book. So the Bible is not, is not we, we need to see it not just as a book, but we need to see it as a series. Like the Chronicles of Narnia, right? You've read that? Or another series uh, uh, from a secular, Harry Potter, right? I haven't read it, but it, it's a series, right? Or, okay, Star Trek, Right? So you've got, you've, got, you've got the one, and then you've got all these others that tell the story this way, and then you've got all the others that tell the story this way. So you have this collection of movies or collection of books that tell one solid story. That's what the Bible is. But the uniqueness of the Bible compared to any other and every other book is this. Who wrote Star Trek? You know, I said Star Trek. I should have said Star Wars. No wonder they were confused earlier. Star Wars, right? Who wrote Star Wars? George Lucas, right? So George Lucas was the author of pretty much the whole thing. I, I'm, maybe there was some help somewhere along the way. But, but for the most part, you say Star Wars, George Lucas. All right? Uh, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia? C.S. Lewis. Lewis, right? So the consistency in this, in this, this, uh, this, this, this series was pretty easy because the author wrote one, then he wrote the next, and he was able to keep his facts straight, right? So the author of the Scripture is who? Okay, it's God, but God didn't use his own finger. He inspired human beings, and who did he inspire to write God, his word? Forty. Forty different authors over a period of 1,500 years. 
It's, it's debatable, 1,500 to 2,000 years, right? So you have God as the author speaking to human beings and writing His Word through them. He used 40 different people from 40 different walks of life. You had the, the, uh, uh, the bankers, you had the, uh, the, the, the everyday farmers who wrote, you had the physicians who wrote, you had the preachers who wrote, you had this massive collection from every walk of life. Forty of them write within a span of 1,500 years, 66 different volumes, and every single volume syncs with the others. They, they inter, intertwine, they, in, they co-mingle and fit together so perfectly that you can't really have one without the other. The Old Testament was begun and everything in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Malachi, every single book, there is one hero in each book and that hero is Jesus. You find Christ Jesus in every single book of the Old Testament and every one of them is pointing the same direction. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at the Exodus story. The way that the Exodus story works out all points to... It's foreshadowing Jesus. Look at the way the Passover happened. Uh, you have to have a basic understanding here. So if, if, if you don't, then you have to go back and look at some of this stuff. The Passover is where God said to the Israelites, today I'm going to deliver you from the hands of the Egyptians and this is how I'm going to do it. You're to take a, 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 a lamb and you're to slaughter the lamb and you're going to take the blood and you're going to put it on the top of the frame and on the bottom and from the side to the side. And when I send the angel through the, uh, the, 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 the city and through the, 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 the homes, the angel will pass over the homes who have the blood on the doorpost. Right? That is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ. He's called the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb. His blood was slain. He was the Lamb without blot or, or without uh, uh, spot or blemish. See, all of these things in the Old Testament were foretelling the coming of Christ. And you have that in Genesis. You have that in Noah. The story of the flood in Noah is a foreshadowing of the saving power of Jesus Christ. All of them. The story of, uh, of Adam and Eve where God kills an animal so that Adam and Eve can be clothed with the skin of an animal rather than with the fig leaves they had. What is that? That's a foretelling of the story of Christ, right? The animal had to die because of their sin. So all of these things, all the way to Jesus, and it, the, it, it, the, in the Gospels, Jesus appears on the scene and He goes, I am what the Old Testament has been talking about. And then, starting in the book of Acts, it's an arrow pointing back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about... What do you think the probability of 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years writing 66 different books split between Old Testament and New Testament would have that kind of synchronism? What's the probability? You can't even hardly get one author to keep it all straight. Yet 40... Now, how does that compare to other religious books? Well, the Book of Mormon, written by Joseph Smith, the new, the, another testament of Jesus Christ, one author, yet very confusing. Not only that, but the things in the Book of Mormon, guess what? You, you cannot find the cities, and you cannot find the names, and you cannot find the people. 
There's no record in history at all of these things. But in the Bible, not only is there a record of people, there's a record of cities, and history is, is, is fleshed out in the Scripture, yet the Scripture was written long before these things ever happened. Does that make sense? So you can go back and you can look at genealogies in the Old Testament. You can say, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. That's the kind of stuff you go, ugh, right? I always wondered as a kid, man, why in the world do they got to tell me who was born to who? You know, what do I care? It's also that you and I can look critically and say, wow, these people actually lived and these people actually did in the time that they're, they're told of the things that the Bible says that they did. So it's historically accurate. What about the book of uh, 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 the, uh, the Quran? The Quran written by Muhammad, one author. Not, 60, not, not 40. Written over a period of a few years. Not 1500. Every other religious book. Buddhist, everyone. So you have this book and the first proof of the credibility of it is the way in which we have it. So you say, okay, well, how can I believe that what's, what we have now is actually what was written back then if it was written so many years ago? Here's how. Because we have over 10,000 handwritten copies of God's Word. Because remember, the Gutenberg Press was the beginning of, the, of, of printing Bibles. Before then, it was all hand copied. What do you think are the possibilities that 10,000 copies could be handwritten, not by one person, not by one group, but by people all over the world, and the only variance, less than 10%, and, and I've heard it's even less than 3%, but the variants are, are minute, making no theological difference to the truths of the text. What are the possibilities? Do you know that there's far more evidence for the credibility of the Bible than we have for Homer, for Iliad and the Odyssey, for any and any work of antiquity? You take any of them and the Bible far outweighs them in terms of how many copies and how, many, how, how few variants there are. And yet today you'll have people say, oh, it's just a fairy tale book. A, tale, a, a, a story written of big fish who, who swallow people whole. Okay, well, take a minute. Forget about what the stories say. Just look at the evidence of what's written. If the evidence of what's written says that this is a credible book, then the contents thereof must have credibility as well, wouldn't you think? So here's another thing. You all okay with this? I, I know it's a little bit, a little bit thick, but um, the prophecies in God's Word bear truth to its credibility. How many prophecies are there in His Word? Do you know? About 2,000. What are the possibilities that a person could prophesy 2,000 times and have every one of them come true? Now, I did the psychic hotline the other day, and i got to tell you, I think it's a sham. Here's how I know. I called up and I said, uh, yes, I, uh, I would like for you to, to tell me my future. And she was very nice. I mean, she, she started off with a, with a bang. I mean, she was like, wow, so you're a guy. I'm like, yeah, wow, that's incredible. And you're, you're calling from Florida. Whoa, amazing. She goes, what's your credit card number? And I go, whoa, you tell me. You tell me. 
and then I'll start, I'll believe what you say. Okay, that didn't really happen. It was a joke. Apparently it flopped. You get it? A psychic should be able to tell you your credit card number and you shouldn't. But, but think about it. How many psychics do you know? <laughs> Don't answer that. Never mind. What about the, the famous predictions, right? You have famous predictors make these famous predictions, and how many of them come true? Virtually none. They might get lucky and be around about, kind of, kind of close. But we're talking about the Bible making specific prophecies, not predictions, prophecies, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Let me give you two. Ezekiel chapter 26. This is my favorite one. Well, one of my favorite ones. Ezekiel chapter 26. That's in the Old Testament. Go after, uh, after Psalms. You've got Jeremiah. And then you've got uh, Lamentations. And then you've got Ezekiel. If you've got to look in your concordance, go ahead and do that. That's, there, there's no, no problem with that. Ezekiel 26. Ezekiel 26 in verse 3. This is a prophecy against Tyre and Sidon. Okay? These are old cities. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Verse 3 of chapter 26. I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the, work, the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out of, the, out of the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. In verse 12, they will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will make you a bare rock, verse 14, and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. And so this is the prophet Ezekiel speaking a prophecy against Tyre. Now, a little bit further, you, fi you find the prophecy against Sidon, but the prophecy against Sidon was that they would have great human loss, but the city would not be destroyed. Well, look in history. By the way... This was written while Tyre was a strong, fortified city. Both of these cities were strong. Both of these cities were prosperous. So the hearers would have said, you are crazy. Do you know how strong our military is? Do you see how big our walls? Ain't nobody going to break us down, right? Well, it wasn't too long after that that the Medes came through. And they busted the walls. And for 13 years, the city of Tyre fought off the army, the, the, uh, the uh, 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 enemy army. And after 13 years of resisting, they finally saw the writing on the wall, so to speak. And they said, you know what? The city's going to fall. So several thousand of them escaped by getting into boats. It's a, it's a city on the sea. They got into boats and they went a half mile out to uh, an island, essentially, and rebuilt their city so that they were protected by water. The enemy army came through, demolished the city of Tyre, and they knocked down the walls, and they left it in, rubbles, uh, in, in, in rubbish, and then they moved on. So that, that was partial prophecy fulfilled, right? 
So somebody would go, wow, that's, that's incredible, but God kind of got it right because he said that nothing would be left and he also said that all of the stuff would be thrown into the sea, right? And that it would be scraped bare and that in the sea, it would be a place to spread fishnets. Well, fast forward 250 years later. 250 years later, this guy by the name of Alexander the Great was marching through, claiming his territory. He got to the sea, and he saw this people on an island. And he said, y'all need to surrender. That's actually, he was southern. Y'all need to surrender. And they, you know, like veggie tails, no, we're not going to surrender. We will not tear down this wall. I mean, they, they, they essentially said, you have no chance. We're out here. You're over there. We're good. So Alexander the Great conferred with his advisors, and they came up with a plan, and here was their plan. Let's take the old city of Tyre, and let's move the stones into the sea, and let's build a land bridge to the island. And when we get there, we will destroy them. And it's, and it's said that Alexander the Great himself carried rocks building this land bridge. And it took a long amount of time, but they finally built this bridge all the way out. When they got there, they not only killed everybody, but they totally decimated the island. And to this day, it has not been rebuilt. This prophecy was given hundreds of years before the destruction of the city. How is it possible that that prophecy would be so specific and so accurate. Do you think Alexander the Great read the Bible and said, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll fulfill the prophecy of Ezekiel. Absolutely not. He didn't care about the prophecy, the, the, the Ezekiel prophecy, but nevertheless, God knew what he was going to do before he ever did it. He built this. So then we have the town of Sidon. They had a plague come through. And 40,000 of their inhabitants died, but even this day, the city still remains. By the way, if you go to Tyre, you can look out on this rock out in the ocean, a half mile out, and you can see fishnets spread because now it's used for the fishermen to spread their nets. Exactly what the Bible said would happen. You also have the city of Babylon. Babylon was a marvelous city. Babylon was a city that was probably the most fortified city in the entire region. Babylon was 196 square miles. Think about that. 196 square miles and the entire city was surrounded by a wall that the base of the wall was 187 feet thick. Now, that, that side of the wall to here is about 60 or 70 feet. So multiply there to here one and a half or two and a half times, and that is the, 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 the depth of the base of the wall around Babylon. Can we just say impenetrable? The towers had to be two or three hundred foot tall above this so that they could see over the city wall because the wall was so tall. This city was was not to fall down. But the Bible tells us in Isaiah that Babylon would be destroyed. And if you follow history, what happened? The Medes came through. They destroyed the city. Right? They destroyed the city. And then another guy came through named Alexander the Great. And when he came through, he had an idea. 
He said, I'm going to rebuild this city and I'm going to make it the great city that it used to be. But guess what happened? The Bible said that Babylon would never be rebuilt. It would be just a pile of rubbish. And before Alexander could carry out his grand plan to rebuild the city, Alexander the Great died. Because nobody was going to thwart what God had said. Now these are two prophecies, or three prophecies. What are the odds that three prophecies written in God, that any three prophecies would come to pass so specifically and so perfectly? Okay, add to those three 1,997 more. All of them. And your friends are going to tell you, you can't really believe that book. That's just an old book. That's just a book that's got, you know, stuff written in it. And No. God's Word has credibility from God Himself. Can you believe the Bible? Yes. What should you do with it? Well, may I offer a suggestion? Read the Bible as if each time you read it, it's the last opportunity you have to know the character and the face of God. Cherish it. You ever seen a video of somebody in a, in a persecuted country who has no, wor- who has no Bibles and somebody brings Bible and Bibles and happen to film it? You ever seen these? The joy and the excitement and the, 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 the crying and the emotion is overwhelming. Because they finally have a copy of God's Word all to themselves. How amazing is that? Treat God's Word the same way, with the same kind of excitement. So here's how you read it. You read it understanding that the entire thing speaks to who God is, but it's different kinds of literature in one series. So in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have history and you have law. You read that differently than you'll read the, the Proverbs or the Song of Songs. And the Psalms you read differently. Here's what I do. I use the Old Testament, uh, the first five books, which is called the Pentateuch, right? Pentateuch, the first five books. Those five books are my foundation for understanding the New Testament. This is, this is how I do it. And so when I'm trying to understand something in the New Testament, what I do is I try to find what did God already say about that. And almost nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, I'll find a link all the way back to the beginning where God has already explained why or at least foreshadowed what He's going to do. The, uh, 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 the judges, so you've got uh, Samuel and you've got judges and you've got... Um, Kings and Chronicles, I look at, those are historical as well, but I use those oftentimes to see how God interacts with people, because there's very broken people in those books. And so I try to understand how God relates to people through how He related to David, through how He related to Samuel. And I don't ever say that just because God said it to Samuel, God is saying it directly to me. Because if God promises Samuel something... He promised Samuel. He didn't promise me. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God promised Samuel something, it's built on a, it, it's built on a revelation of some characteristic of God 
And so I say, okay, that promise is specifically to Samuel, but because God is like this, then God is like this to me. Does that make sense? And so, so I don't claim, well, you promise him, so you promise me. I say, you're the same God. So if you treat him that way, then I'm going to trust that you're going to treat me as your child the same way because that's your character, that's your nature. You go into the book of Psalms, one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. Why? Because that's where the refreshing of the soul comes from so often for me. You can go through the Psalms and you can read it. And, and, and as you read it, 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 it speaks more of a... There's more feeling there, I guess you could say. That's why so many songs are written to the Psalms. It was designed that way, folks. That's the plan. But in the Psalms, don't forget that there are also um, uh, foreshadowings of Christ Jesus. And so it, it, it is theological. It's not just emotional. But I use it personally as one of those just devotional reading things. That's the primary use for it. The Proverbs are, are, are gold. The richest man that ever lived, Solomon... He was also the wisest man that ever lived because God gave him his wisdom. Wrote down this wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And in these Proverbs, he basically tells us how to have a long, successful, happy life. Here's the cool thing. How many, saw, how many Proverbs are there? How many chapters? 31. How many days of the week or of the, the month are there? 31 or 30 or 28 or 29, depending on which one, right? So here's what you can do. You can read one chapter of Proverbs every single day. Or even better than that, read one proverb a day and live that proverb. The Proverbs will give you wisdom beyond compare. And then if you go into the prophecies, you've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those are the major prophets. And then you've got all the minor prophets those prophecies point to historical truth or historical facts. So you can look at history in a history book and you can go, oh, the Bible talked about that. Oh, the Bible talked about that. Oh, the Bible talked about that. Right? That's what those prophecies are primarily, or, or the, that's what they're helpful in doing. They do other things as well. This is just a, a, an overview. You go to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. These Gospels tell a lot of the same stories, but there are differences in the stories. One writer has this perspective, another writer has this perspective of the same story. So we put the two together and we go, oh, that's a more complete picture of what actually happened. So in the Gospels, we know the person of Jesus. Otherwise, how would you know? And so you want to know how I try to live my life? I go, okay, what would Jesus do? There should be a bracelet and a saying about that. Something like, oh, no, seriously, seriously, like WWJD. That would, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? I should market that. I mean, think about it. You go, what would Jesus do? Well, what did he do with the woman at the well? Okay, well, I'm going to do that too. Have you ever taken the Gospels and just, just word, verse by verse asked yourself, okay, am I doing that? Am I doing that? Am I doing that? Am I doing that? And then every time you find that you are not in, in that you're not congruent with the gospel, you go, okay, I'm going to adjust me. I'm not going to ask God to adjust. That's aligning yourself with his word. And then if you go into the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the story of the church. It's actually, if, if, actually, the author of Acts is Luke. 
The physician Luke, he's very particular. He does specifics. He does details. And the book of Acts is actually part two of the gospel of Luke. So it's really one book together. We just have to happen to have it separated. And so Luke, uh, the, the Gospel of Luke tells us about Jesus, and then the, 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 the book of Acts tells us, okay, now what? And it gives us the story of how God moved in the early church, and it really gives us our blueprint of how we're to be as the church. In it, you find faith. In it, you find struggle. The beautiful thing about the book of Acts, when I was a, a, young, a young pastor, it was, I still am, but... Um, I used, to, I used to find great comfort. You know, it refreshes the soul. Here's the thing. I used to, I used to find uh, such struggle because, because the church seems so messed up. And then I go, wait a minute. They only got it right for two chapters. The book of Acts, you look at it. They only got it right until chapter 4. By chapter 5, it was all messed up. And I'm going, man, if they walked with Jesus and couldn't get it right for longer than a couple chapters, there's hope for us too. Amen? Right? Do you know that they had, they had struggle and they had, they had infighting in chapter 6 of Acts? And you know that the, the, the church in chapter 15 of, of Acts, they were, they were jealous and, and, and skeptical of the church that, that was starting with a bunch of Gentiles. I mean, it's beautiful. And then if you look in Romans, Romans gives us the law through Christ. It clarifies, and I'd say it clarifies, it also, it, it, it deepens it, right? And then if you continue on through First and Second Corinthians, the Corinthian church was a jacked up church. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Their church was so messed up, they had this, this grotesque, perverted um, um, uh, uh, church body that Paul pretty much said, look, I'm going to have to come and lay down some law. I mean, he called him out. And then in the second book to the Corinthians, he lightened up and he said, you know what? I'm seeing a little bit of hope. I'm, I'm seeing some, right? That's what First Second Corinthians is all about. And then if you continue through the rest of the Bible, we won't do this this, this morning, but I do want to tell you that you have the pastoral epistles, Right? You have uh, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, Galatians. They're to the specific churches of those cities, but the, the, the things that God says to those churches certainly applies to us. And then all the way to the end, you have what? Revelation. The revelation of the end. Now, let me ask you a question. If 2,000 prophecies came true, every one, as specific as they were given, what do you suppose the possibility that revelation will come, come true as well? 100%. I have no doubt that exactly what God says in Revelation is going to come to pass. How many of us have spent any time at all in understanding Revelation. God is giving us the future. How many of us have taken the time to understand it? I haven't put enough time into it. I'll be honest with you. That's one of the things out of this that's convicted me. God said, look, I got, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I can say that, that as I've started to 
to look at it, I see that we are right now poised perfectly for God to fulfill everything He said would happen in the end of days. Can I tell you some good news? You are Alabama, not Georgia in this one. Do y'all follow that? It doesn't look so good, but there's a, there's a surprise ending coming. You might be behind, but you're going to make up some ground. Y'all saw the game last night. You know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, just hear this. It doesn't matter what, what the score says right now. I promise you, Jesus wins. I stake my everything on this book. I will argue it to the death. Not argue like arguing, but I will, I will defend it to the death. Why? Because I believe what God says. It's refreshment to the soul. It's wisdom to the simple. It's light to the eyes. Its precepts are perfect. It's true. Will you pray with me? Father, may we value your word with the utmost of value. Lord, I pray that you'd make us hungry to sit with it. I pray that you would make us discontent with settling for anything less than hearing from you through your word. Father, thank you for the prophecies. Thank you for the specifics. Thank you for the way that you wrote it through human authors in such an incredible, improbable way. Father, you thought through this whole thing. Perfect are all your ways. My prayer this day, oh God, is that this, that your word would be elevated in our hearts and in our minds and in our schedules. Because nothing else has the same kind of power to change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you have not had a God's Word, I want to invite you just to spend some time with God this morning and ask Him to make you hungry. If this morning you were like Billy Graham and like so many, I was at this point at one time, you, you believe most of it, but you weren't sure if you could step across that line and go, okay, fully, I'd fully commit. I want to invite you this morning to take that step of faith and say, you know what, God, I truly am going to place all of my faith in what you've said through your Word. And I'm going to let you prove yourself. He has no problem with that. This morning, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that. Just say to Him, God, I know that I need you because I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin condemns me to an eternity without you. But I trust in the work of Jesus Christ. I place my faith in Him. And I ask Him to forgive me of my sin.
Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at FBC.